We'll remain standing for the reading of scripture from Romans chapter 4. This is God's word for us today, Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Please be seated. As we saw last day at the end of Romans chapter 3, Paul, after he has expounded that great doctrine of justification by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, came to another one of those rhetorical questions. And if you read through the book of Romans with an eye for this, you'll realize that it's almost a catechism. Paul is continually asking questions. What about this? Someone will say this. What, what then? And he came to one of those at the end of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 17, he asked, then what becomes of our boasting? What becomes of the boasting of those who believe that their very salvation is in some way connected to their own goodness or to their good works? There's a lot of people in the world today who do believe that. There's a lot of people who think that if you can just be good enough, not perfect, no one's perfect, we know that, but if you can be good enough, if you can be maybe a little better than the worst of humanity, if you can keep the Ten Commandments or even just the two, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, then things will be okay. If that were the case, then there would be some room for boasting. But Paul wrote, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. How? By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, wrote the apostle, but by the law of faith. Now, I know we've talked about this. We just talked about it a week ago, but it's a point that bears repeating since the very way that Paul framed the question indicates that we as human beings are inclined to this sort of thing. <clears throat> we are inclined to boast. Paul doesn't ask the question, what can we boast about then, or can we boast at all? He just assumes that we will do it, and he says, what becomes of our boasting? We're going to boast, but what's the point? And of course, there is no point. In fact, it is excluded, Paul says. Still, it needs to be said, because... As one commentator has written, since Jew and Gentile alike are all under wrath for their sin, and since the law of God does not excuse or save Jews, but rather reveals their condemnation, and since the gospel exposes a person's unrighteousness while revealing God's righteousness, no one, not even a Jew, has grounds for boasting. Indeed, boasting is excluded since justification is through faith alone and not because of human achievement. 
4, as we noted last week, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or, more specifically then, if this was not the case, would that mean that God is the God of Jews only? Would that mean that God was the God of those who had the law and were under the impression, false though it was, that they were pretty good at keeping it? Is God the God of the Jews only? No, he is not the God of the Jews only. He is God of the Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So again, there you have it, that concise, laser-focused summary that Paul comes to. We are saved by grace through faith and not by works of the law. God will justify the circumcised, the Jew, the one who has the law and fails to keep it. If he's going to be justified, he will be justified by faith. And God will justify the uncircumcised, the Gentile, those of us who were not born into that old covenant community who did not have the law. And it wouldn't have made any difference anyway. We wouldn't have kept it either. God will justify us by faith as well. But the next question Paul asks is significant. Do we then overthrow the law by faith? Having said that we are not under law but under grace, can we then just go ahead and throw away the scriptures of the old covenant and proceed on the basis of the new alone? Well, no. By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. But what does that mean exactly? If we're not saved by works of the law, as many, both Jew and Gentile alike, seem to imagine, then what does it mean that by our faith we uphold the law? Well, to answer this question, Paul looks to the case of Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. Now, when Paul wrote that, when Paul wrote, according to the flesh, it appears that he's sort of reverting just momentarily to his Jewish identity, which makes absolutely perfect sense. Elsewhere, Paul had identified himself as one who was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And certainly as such, Paul had the right to speak of Abraham as his forefather according to the flesh. Paul was physically descended from that line of Abraham. And he wrote in another place, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, especially any of us Gentiles, Paul says, I have more. So here at the beginning of the argument, Paul speaks to Jews as as one of their own. But just so that we as Gentiles are not tempted to tune out, understand that later on in this chapter, in verse 16, Paul declared that is why it, the promise, depends on faith in order that it may may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So there's no sense in which Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation in some peculiar way that sets them apart. Abraham is the father of all who share in his faith. 
Paul made the point in Galatians 3, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. It's like that old children's song that we used to sing with the motions. Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them and so are you. At least if we belong to Christ, because then, if we belong to Christ, if we have come to God through faith in Jesus and been born of his spirit, then we are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So let's just praise the Lord. And here's the thing. Paul makes this case about Abraham because if we were Jewish or even just people who were in the habit of reading our Bible, we might read about Abraham and we might think that if there was ever anyone in all of human history who was set apart and called because of his own righteousness, it would be him. The guy gets most of five verses to himself in that Hebrews hall of faith, after all. But that's exactly why Paul uses him as a reference point. Not because he was righteous in himself, but because he truly wasn't. Joshua pointed out in Joshua 24, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So before there was Abraham the patriarch, there was Abraham the pagan, Abraham the idolater. God did not call him because of his righteousness. God called Abraham because of his own grace. And again, this is exactly the point. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. Abraham trusted in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So if Abraham, of all people, could only be saved by grace through faith, then certainly this must be true of you and me as well. And it is. We can only be saved by grace through faith. Because, verse 4, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift. They are not counted as grace. They are counted as his due. See, if salvation could be earned by anyone on the basis of works, if it was even possible for us to be good enough to save ourselves in that way, then faith is nullified and grace is no longer grace. Even Abraham was not trusting in the one who justifies those who are good enough, those who are already righteous. In truth, the righteous, if there ever were any, and there were not, would not need justification. If righteousness comes through the law, if it was ever possible for anyone to be accounted righteous on the basis of his own works, then Christ died needlessly. Jesus said something similar. He said, they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. The reason we need Christ is because we are dead in our trespasses and sins just like every other human who ever lived. So what did Abraham, our forefather, gain? What did he find concerning this matter? 
He did not find salvation as given as wages or even a reward to those who earn it by their works, rather to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted. This is a banking word. His faith is accounted. His faith is reckoned. His faith is credited as righteousness. And we have to come back to this one more time and remember the context here. We have to take a moment to decipher some Pauline shorthand, as one author says. When Paul said that Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness, he was not, let's be clear, he was not saying that God takes our faith, imperfect as that may be, and substitutes that for the righteousness required by the law. That would be merely accepting one kind of human work, one kind of human effort in lieu of another, and that would not be the gospel. That is not what Paul is preaching here. That is not what he's preaching throughout the book of Romans. No, not at all, as one person wrote. The ground of our righteousness is the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The righteousness of another is apprehended by us using the instrument of faith. So he's not saying our faith, some quality that we might be able to generate within ourselves and offer that up to God, takes the place of the righteousness that God requires. Not at all. Jesus used a similar device whenever he said something along the lines of your faith has saved you or your faith has made you well or according to your faith be it done unto you. He's not in any way teaching that human faith is a force that comes from within ourselves that can act on the divine will or even on the creation by its own strength and virtue. We must not fall into the trap of having faith in our faith. Worse yet, faith in ourselves. That's Gnosticism. That's what they called it in the ancient world. Today they call it the prosperity or the word of faith gospel. That's not what Paul is teaching. It is not our faith that saves. It's not our faith that heals and delivers. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, in fact, who gives us that faith. Not only to believe in him, but also to receive all of these good gifts at his hand. And so that we don't forget, we should fall down and worship before him every single time we think of it. Every time we're tempted to pat ourselves on the back and say, well, I'm pretty good, or at least I'm less worse. We should fall down on our knees and acknowledge that it is only by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus that we may come to him, that we may worship him, that we may know him as our God and our Father, and that we may live for his glory in this world. It's true of us, it was true of Abraham. The only thing that Abraham brought and the only thing that we bring, the only thing that anyone brings to the Lord is their need. 
The only thing we contribute to our salvation, as someone has said, is the very sin from which, from which we must be saved. That's it. You have nothing to offer God except your brokenness and your sin. And then God justifies the ungodly. For us too, to the one who does not work but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. In just a few minutes, we're going to come to this table to celebrate God's grace to us in Christ Jesus. And as we've read, we know if we partake of the sacrament in unbelief and willful disobedience, we eat and drink judgment to ourselves. This too is not a work. Still, this solemn warning is not designed to discourage penitent sinners from coming to the Holy Sacrament. We do not come to this supper. Not today, not ever, as though we were righteous in ourselves, but rather to testify that we are sinners and that we look to Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. I think it's probably not overstating the case to say that really as we interpret what the scripture says about the only way you can come to this table in an unworthy manner is to come believing that you are worthy to come believing that because you've done good God will accept you that's contrary to the whole point of this sacrament to the one who does not work but believes, who trusts, who has faith in Jesus Christ, the one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, and especially here. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Here Paul turns from the most famous of the patriarchs, I apologize, that's not the right verse up there, but uh, Paul turns from the most famous of the patriarchs, Abraham, to the most famous of the kings of Israel, not only because these were the forefathers of Israel, but also because as such, Abraham and David were the forefathers of Jesus. We saw long ago, back in chapter 1, that Jesus, the Son of God, was descended from David according to the flesh. And all through this book, Paul has been careful to anchor his gospel in the promises of God in the Old Covenant. It's been said, and it's simply true, the gospel doesn't begin in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The gospel begins in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And when we come to this table, we are revisiting that upper room in Jerusalem where Jesus gathered with his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. But beyond that, further back, we are returning to the homes of those Hebrew slaves thousands of years before who gathered in the night behind doors that bore the sign of the cross, looking forward to a redemption and a deliverance that was so much bigger than anything that they would experience the following morning. But the principle holds true. They, like us, did not work for or earn their salvation in any way. If they had, 
it would have been counted as no more and no less than their due. They just believed. The saints of the Old Testament had faith. They trusted in God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or imagine. And this morning here, we are called to that same faith. The faith of Abel and of Enoch and Noah. The faith of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses. The faith of Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and Samuel. The faith of David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, who in spite of having been carried away at times by serious and outrageous sins or maybe because he was carried away at times by serious and outrageous sins, was moved to write the miracle of the miracle of divine accounting. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Blessed is the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those who by God's grace in Christ Jesus have come to understand and believe that when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Blessed are all who have believed and have been invited to God's table of grace. May we come this morning in humble faith with sorrow for our sin and a will to follow him as he commands. Let's pray. Father, it shows the depth of sin in our hearts that we want to take even just the least little bit of credit for the work of Christ. Forgive us, Father. Forgive us for our arrogance and presumption Forgive us for those times when we have thought well of ourselves, when we ought to have recognized that this is all by your grace. Help us, Father, as we continue to worship and as we come to the table of the Lord to remember that it is only because of Christ's body and blood given for us on Calvary's cross. It is only because of your grace and mercy toward us in him that we can even Be here today, standing in your presence, singing songs of praise, worshiping before you, and partaking of this holy sacrament that you offer us in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.